0: This is a podcast from 3RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Hi and welcome to Radio Therapy. It's our 21st 21st year broadcasting. So it really is time we left home, got a job, maybe a haircut or two. But it's just way too much fun gas-bagging with you guys on a Sunday morning. Today we have some major, major medical research news that broke over the summer break. In fact, really just over the last couple of weeks. Analyzing the data from literally thousands of people with schizophrenia, scientists found a very clear genetic association between the disorder and a gene on chromosome 6. It's a gene known as C4. And what's more, the location of this gene makes sense from what we know about the development of the disorder. It really is one of the breakthroughs of the decade. And here to explain it in detail is Dr. Perry Natal. Now, fans of the show will recall Perry is a consultant psychiatrist specializing in mothers and babies. But what you didn't know is she's also doing a PhD in, get this, psychoneuroimmunology. She'll explain exactly what that means to me as well. And she is super, super, super smart and very friendly to boot. Dr. Moto, put away your phone. You're such an adolescent. Dr. Nick is our favourite GP and he never fails to know everything about something. And he's humble too. He's like the Wikipedia of medicine. Throw him a question and he'll bat you back and answer, backed by evidence. I know, I've checked. This morning, he'll be walking us through the Zika virus. We need the basics, like where did it come from, what sort of illnesses does it cause and what can we do to stop it? Given that who, that's the world, Health Authority has made it a priority. This is something we all really need to know about. And just when you thought there weren't enough psychiatrists in the studio, we've got the very young Dr. Muto, himself also super smart. He's a young doctor who likes motorbiking into work and across western africa too if possible um he's a cool dude is moto and to mark the chinese new year which we celebrated last night um he's in to talk with us about the uh, mental health act in china and also mental health in general in china so stay with us for the next hour of radiotherapy dr moto i am so sorry uh, you had this really guilty look on your face and i said put
0: away your fire Oh, look, I think it's um, fair discipline action. <laughs> okay. Good. Like somebody in um, a... certain countries, I um, might be jailed for what i just done. So. Your,
1: your deference to authority is really quite impressive.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> Dr Perinatal, nice to have you in too. Good morning. And Dr Nick. I'm,
2: I'm watching you today, Rob, because i mean, sorry, Mal, um, because I'm sensitised to words in 2016, a uh, little letter I had in The Age earlier this week about the rise of, you know... Really? Even in erudite conversation. So we're going to do a little you know count on this show and see how many times the presenters say you know know. in the middle of their bits of spiel.
1: So presenters, buzz, say buzz any (laughs) time somebody says you know. I already picked up Dr. Perry saying it once outside. I didn't want to say anything. Okay, well buzzer in the studio now. (laughs) So uh, Nick... Salmonella, it's all over the headlines. In Mm. fact, uh, I think I was telling you the other day that uh, we had a bag of the uh, culprit lettuce. And uh, my family said, no, no, eat it. And I said, no, we're throwing that out right now. <laughs> yeah, though, funny enough, you
2: probably would have been okay because I'm sure there must have been hundreds, if not thousands, Shop. of bags Shop. of contaminated lettuce <laughs> consumed. And salmonella is one of those funny bugs which is mostly is killed by stomach acid. Oh, um, no. Yeah, so most of us get away without without too much trouble. Um, but it can cause nasty gastrointestinal illness, particularly diarrhea and vomiting. And we've had now probably over 100 cases linked to this fresh lettuce, um, a lot of which has been sold through Coles and Woolworths, and they say they've pulled all the offending stuff from the shelves. Um, seems to have come from the Tripod Farm over in Bacchus Marsh, huh. um, who have a long reputation for producing excellent quality salads. Uh, and it's a funny old bug. This it can get into fertilisers. It's probably been found uh, in the fresh lettuce because of some chicken fertiliser that was used, that was contaminated, and despite all their washing and hygiene precautions Mm -hmm. and so on, some of it stayed in the lettuce.
1: Now, I saw it was, it was called salmonella anatus or something like that, some weird...
2: Yeah, t- there are a whole batch of salmonella <laughs> subspecies. There's mm. over 2,000 different salmonella subtypes, and mm. this is one of the less common, but there are a lot of these things around that can cause tummy upsets, and this is one that's just crept into our food chain, we're trying to creep it back out again. Do you know if I find? Can you get salmonella from fish? Do you know? Uh, good question. Certainly you get it from meat products, mm. the commonest being mm. um, the chickens. Yeah. yeah. Um, and salt-
1: salamis as well? Did, was that the...
2: No, was that E. coli? Uh, that's E. coli oh, okay, that right. you get yeah. in the the, the... the chicken is the commonest right. to, cause, and something like 25% of Australian chooks um, have salmonella uh, in the raw meat. So it's, Get
1: away! So how yeah. come we don't all get no. sick?
2: Because right. we cook it. 80, oh. 88% of Australian chooks carry campylobacter. So if you thought salmonella was a concern... Uh, both of these bugs...
1: <laughs> Something else to worry about now. Thanks, oh,
2: You've got to be really careful of raw chicken because both... Campylobacter is another bug that causes mm. a nasty stomach upset, mm. a lot of pain, diarrhoea, sometimes blood in the poo. Mm. Pretty horrible infection. Um, both of these bugs are easily killed by cooking. You've got to get mm. some meat over about 70 degrees. Mm. But the real danger is that people prepare their raw chicken and then on the same surface, without properly washing, they then cut their
1: salad and the bugs ah. get into the fresh food That's from the cooking surfaces. Do you know what I find interesting about salmonella? Like, I haven't heard about it in fish. Maybe it does. But it's salmon. Like, you don't get it in salmon. And yet, where does the name salmonella come from? Oh, that's a good question. And I would have thought it came from salmon.
2: It sounds lovely, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Maybe that's nice. Uh, but the other thing that uh, people need to realise is that your mum would often tell you you should wash your chicken before cooking it. I've heard this Yes. And actually, that's probably riskier than not washing it because you wash your chicken in the sink and the salmonella and the campylobacter goes all over the sink and the washing up brush and everything, everywhere else and that's where you get your infection from. So don't wash your chook. I heard that we should be washing our eggs, though. Yeah, because the uh, salmonella and um, campylobacter in the chickens it's excreted in the poo, goes on the outside mm-hmm. of the egg and particularly dirty eggs are a good way of carrying salmonella now mm-hmm. The egg shell is a good barrier to prevent the salmonella getting into mm. the egg itself. Mm. So a cracked egg that's in the carton is quite high risk. Don't make your mayonnaise with a previously cracked egg. Mm. Uh, and if you are going to make um, uh, raw egg products like mayonnaise, it's a good idea not to, s- what I used to do, which is to separate the egg from the, uh, the yolk from the white, using the, shell. using the shell, because yeah. the shell is the thing that carries the salmonella. Do
1: you use a proper little strainer separately from the egg shell. Uh, yeah, you know, I um, I, a couple of years ago there was an outbreak of salmonella in uh, in some people very close to me, and the amount of uh, vomiting and poo was extra. Ordinary. I had never seen anything like it before in my life. It is quite a frightening illness, i got to say.
2: It can be very impressive, and yeah. uh, it sometimes does need medical treatment, not just for the dehydration, but to stop the vomiting and diarrhoea.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, my friends, Dr. Moto, Dr. Perinatal, medical news coming up. Um, anything that's impressed you in the headlines in the last couple of weeks?
3: Can I talk first? You, of course you can. Because I have this really, really, really big story.
1: Tell us about your big story.
3: Okay. So... I know when something in psychiatry has made big news, when my mother emails me about it. <laughs> and, your uh, mother emails? <laughs> uh, she does. Big news she emails. And, um, and she emailed me several times about this. And that's because it's in news headlines all over the place, really. Yeah. And I'm talking about what you referred to in your opening discussion about um, this new research about schizophrenia and how it might work in the brain. And mm-hmm. that gives us an opportunity to think a bit more clearly about where it comes from and... Mm-hmm. And to also think therefore about how we might be able to treat it. Because at the moment our treatments are at best partial, I mm-hmm. would suggest, for people with schizophrenia mm. and so, I might get down to talking about it, mm-hmm. but I have to warn you that I did try and explain this over dinner to my brother mm-hmm. last night, mm-hmm. and I failed dismally. So, if I start to descend into what is jargon, he, four, how old is he? <laughs> <laughs> he? He's a very smart man. I'm in his sure 30s, he is. I'm but sure he is. he's not medical at all. And when yeah. I started talking about immunology, it, it sort of became a bit confusing for him. So, do
1: you know? Do you know, uh, Doctor? Uh, what's his not cafe latte? What's his name? Uh, Doctor um, Espresso? Doctor? <laughs> The other guy that comes on the show is my best mate from high school and his name is just suddenly (laughs) gone from my brain. Oh, no, what does that mean? (laughs) Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry, Doolittle. He and I have been talking about this and we've been talking about complex systems and we have a theory that if you can't explain it to a primary school kid, then you don't understand it or it's something that you don't have your handle on completely. I'm not pointing fingers at you, by no, the
3: no, way, no, Dr. But Perry. I think actually that's really true. Like, a lot of this research is very new and maybe I don't understand no,
1: as well. Oh, like no, no, I'm so. not talk- Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, well, now I'm feeling guilty. But <laughs> I, I, I recently saw a film called The Big Short. Yes. And, um, you know, part of that premise, which is just the best movie ever, part of the premise was that but a lot the of, of these guys... Really good
3: too, I must say.
1: I'm going to get the book. Mm. Was that a lot of these guys and, you know, Wall Street or wherever were saying, oh, no, it's just the CDOs and all these complex financial products. The layperson can't understand them. No way. And I won't ruin the movie for you, but they get people to explain them in really simple terms and it's so obvious. And Like, you know, my, my 12-year-old could understand uh, these complex things. And I think that's the problem, when you can't explain it to somebody that, you know, that means you don't understand it well and the genie gets out of the bottle. So mm. I'm, you've always... Look, in the cafe across the road you
0: explained it really well to me so i'm sure everybody <laughs> will understand
1: it. what about you moto news over the summer
0: as far as health and medical news is concerned i have nothing so erudite and um, scholarly to show <laughs> i was more just um, amazed and um, aghast by the fact that i uh, read in the news um somebody is trying to lose weight by spending a year yeah. eating nothing but potatoes that can't be good for you how's that for a bombshell
1: but you can't do that; and you get sick.
0: You it's get... the return of the carbs, my friend. <laughs> the return of the, the carbs. carbs is making a comeback. It's like stuff the Jedi. We're returning. It's called the return of the carbs. Now, whenever episode eight,
1: I get my dietary advice from Doctor Nick. Surely. Nick, you can't just survive on potatoes.
2: I don't think there are too many dietary guidelines that suggest that the potato is a whole food containing every ingredient known to mankind. It doesn't uh, much protein, s- does it? Well, you'd be struggling a bit with protein, you'd certainly be struggling with a whole range of vitamins, um, and I think you'd be bored to tears after about <laughs> two and a half days. Now, potato cakes, that's a different story. Or that's potato right. samosas. Well, potato cakes have the other main food
1: groups of salt and fat. Yeah. Exactly. Potato chips? Potato chips. Lots of ways of having potatoes.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
2: Dr Nick, Zika. Yes, it's um, been in the news, as um, most people be aware, this is another one of these new viruses, and we seem to go through SARS and stuff like this, and just as they disappear, we have the latest coming up. Um, Zika, of course, like most of these things, turns out not to be that new. Um, This virus was first described in Africa in Uganda in 1947. But uh, nobody took terribly much notice because it was just yet another virus that circulated around in Africa without causing too
1: much trouble. Hang on, they isolated a virus in 1947. You don't they think did. of 1947 as a time of isolating sort of little things, viruses and stuff? Well, they,
2: they worked out DNA and RNA and the double helix back earlier in the
1: 1940s, that they worked out what viruses had in them, and then they found Zika in uh, 1947. Okay. Now, I realise this is totally off topic, but that's one of the joys of radiotherapy. <laughs> uh, you know, when did people start thinking that viruses were alive? Was there a point where people said, hey, you know, these things are alive?
2: This was a high school essay, isn't it? Are viruses alive or not because they can only live inside another host? They cannot live independently. So do they genuinely
1: form a life form? Oh, I thought they were deemed as being alive. Is there still conjecture over whether they're alive or not? Philosophers around the world still (laughs) arguing furiously. Ivory towers. So I distract. 1947, Zika discovered in Africa. Yes, in Uganda.
2: And no one took terribly much notice, just another virus. Uh, because it wasn't causing people too much trouble. Um, it then seems to have moved out of Africa through Micronesia. And uh, um, I'm sure you can tell me where Micronesia is. Mm. Ooh, I'm got so sure. a slightly blank face. I had to look it up. I'm I'm firing <laughs> up Wikipedia. So Micr- Micronesia is that <laughs> bunch of islands, so a couple of thousand of these little islands uh, if, geographically, sort of the bits north of Papua New Guinea, um, and contains islands that people might have heard of like Nauru. Um, that's part of Micronesia. Mm. So Zika seemed to migrate across the world through Micronesia and then French Polynesia, which is further off to the right when you look at the map.
1: Which is that New Caledonia?
2: That's Tahiti and places like that. Oh, okay. yeah. um, but then, uh, and again, nobody took, took much notice because it wasn't causing people much trouble, but the outbreak last year, 2015, in Brazil is when people suddenly... Suddenly stood up and took notice because, the, of course, the Olympic Games are going to be there, and here is this virus oh. circulating. And a question, because it's still not known for sure, whether this virus is causing the very severe complication for pregnant women mm. of microcephaly, mm. which is mm. a fancy Latin term for babies being born with small heads and mm. shrunken brains mm. and very severe cognitive defects as a result Mm. and of course if Zika is responsible for microcephaly, that would be very very important. Mm.
3: That would be really important but I I wonder if um, I can ask you another couple of questions about this because it sounds like it's been circulating in Africa and in those other areas that you mentioned for quite a long time and that there might be a certain degree of immunity built up in that population so it wasn't quite as obvious that this was a serious complication but Having moved to a new area where there's no host or local immunity, that's, that's when you notice these terrible, terrible complications for pregnant women. Is that what's happened?
2: We don't know because okay. it's not certain that Zika is responsible for the microcephaly. So they've been very, very cautious. So it interests me that the WHO have said that this is a state of emergency around Zika. Uh, and I think that's precautionary because while it's thought that there may be an association, it's not yet proven.
1: Mm.
2: Mm, so complicated virus, and it's just an example of how complicated these things can be. It's, it's spread by mosquitoes. Uh, and, of course, that's one of the things that concerns people because the type of mosquito that spreads Zika is the yellow fever mosquito, Aedes aegypti. Um, and that, vi- that mosquito is common in the northern parts of Queensland. Uh, so this, ah, is that why? Um, there's uh, been a lot of press about it. So area. from the Australian oh, perspective, uh, and a lot of countries through Asia and Africa um, and parts of Central and South America have Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. So the potential for Zika to be spread through these other countries certainly exists.
1: Is it like malaria where it's only the female uh, mozzie that does it? Or...? I
2: don't know the answer to that because okay. they, um, the the female mozzies are the ones that have to suck blood. They don't actually feed on the blood. The blood is what's needed to create the eggs, which helps them breed, which is why it's only the females that suck blood Uh, and when they suck blood they, uh, they, in order to do that they inject a bit of anticoagulant into you um, and uh, this is how they pass on viruses Um, so it's only the female mosquitoes that do that to you. Um, Zika is a a, a virus that these mosquitoes carry within them. The, The reason other viruses like HIV and so on are not transmitted by mosquitoes is that they don't infect the mosquito Uh whereas Zika does so it's within the mosquito so then in the salivary fluid that the mosquito injects back into you
1: and how would you how would somebody know if they've got a zika viral infection i mean is there anything specific? well mostly
2: mostly people don't because for most people zika is either mildly symptomatic fluey kind of thing or nothing much at all so that's one of the reasons nobody's taken terribly much notice because it's uh, it doesn't cause severe disease for the overwhelming majority of people are are not aware at this stage that there are any deaths known
1: from Zika virus. So obviously the major complication is the the microcephaly. Well potentially that's the major complication so So we
2: have to be cautious there's still a
1: question mark over whether it's really causative. So I mean so we're in the middle of now um, investigating that link what does it take to investigate? I mean, how do you, how do you, is it epidemiological? you say, well, we, need, been... it, we need EpiPen here because that's
2: oh, exactly course. what it's about. Yeah. And at some point, presumably, some blood tests will be used to determine whether or not the women who are having these microcephalic babies have been infected around about the time that was critical.
0: Yeah. Shares a um, bit of a parallel with the cytomegalovirus, it sounds like. I mean, that's been implicated in microcephaly. Um, It doesn't cause deaths, it does cause flu-like symptoms and uh, most people who contract um, um, psychomegalovirus or CMV, it's not even detected um, via blood tests or anything, but it is a major concern if um, pregnant women, particularly around the time of delivery, are um, CMV positive, um, actively um, having a CMV infection because of the implicated I'm concerned with microcephaly.
2: And you're absolutely right. There are a whole series of these sorts of infections which don't bother us too much as healthy adults but which can have very harmful effects on, on babies. So CMV, as you say, which, which can be a cause of a glandular fever-like illness, um, though often, as you correctly say, it, it causes minor or no illness at all, but can have catastrophic... Troph- Catastrophic effects uh, on pregnant women and their babies. There is a blood test for CMV to say whether or not someone's got it or yes. has it, um, but it's only an indication. It doesn't tell you exactly what's happening at this point in time.
1: Does it, I mean, just you mentioned four, was, Did you say four thousand cases of microcephaly, or did I mishear that? You didn't mishear it. I didn't say it at all. Okay, so <laughs> you intended to <Okay>. it. Because <laughs> I, I wonder. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the psychology here because you're know, a psychiatrist. Um, h- why would somebody make that association if it didn't exist at all? Somebody came down with like they. I mean, how does that work? Uh, do an uh,
2: I can't answer that question. Yeah. I think I think the thing that sensitized everybody to Zika so much right. is the Olympic Games, the ah, massive ah, influx ah, of people about ah, to descend on ah, South America and ah, yes. Brazil in particular. Well, there's an and Any... Uh, infection, that's suddenly epidemic in the area that might be causing serious consequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just raises people's sensitivity levels a little bit.
1: Do you know, it really is a matter of emphasis. Um, I remember we we came to you, Dr Nick, um, when we were going to uh, Vietnam to get advice about um, travel medicine and I was particularly concerned about malaria. I didn't want to get malaria. Da, 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 da. And you said, yeah, yeah, malaria is important but you've got to watch out for dengue. Mm. And I thought oh, yeah, I remember hearing about dengue in medical school. It's just, yeah, yeah I remember that. And then um, when I was in Saigon, I spoke to um, one of the locals there. I said... um Uh, I said, do you have many cases of malaria? He goes, yeah, there's some cases of malaria. I said, have you had many cases of um, dengue? He goes, oh, not many last year. 50,000. 50,000 cases of dengue.
2: And it's the same mosquito. It's the Aedes aegypti that carries dengue fever, another one of these diseases. We have no vaccine for it. There is no treatment for it. There are lots of different types of dengue, well, four main types of dengue. um, And it can be a very nasty illness. Breakbone fever is its other name because of the pain. And uh, Curiously, it's one of those unusual ones where when you get infected with dengue, you do become immune to that strain, Mm. but it's a very unusual illness because if you get a second strain on a subsequent trip, you can get more severe disease. So there's a curious effect with dengue that you're more at risk from a subsequent infection with a different strain, whereas normally there's some cross-immunity,
1: whereas with dengue there's a sensitization of the immune system. It's just fascinating. A mate of mine who I was talking to about this um, and the Vietnam trip said, yeah, look, I want to go to Vietnam, but I've had dengue before, and it's been you know, serologically proven, so I'm not sure if I'm going to risk it. You know? needs to plaster himself with all that nasty mosquito repellent containing yes. DEET,
2: the diethyl di- toluamide. That I was telling you about it. Hey, but there's so-
0: no immunisation either. No. So, yeah, well, it's really just prevention from sting, uh, being stung, having yeah. your blood
2: sucked. Yeah, there's a, there's a dengue vaccine being trialled at the moment, um,
1: but unless it covers all the different
2: serotypes, it's going to be a real
1: problem. I remember, you know, being told, cover up when you go outside so you don't get bitten by mozzies. But man, oh man, you know, when it's 99.9% humid and 35 degrees outside, it's pretty hard to cover up, you know. A lot of the time. Well, they use mosquito nets and all those sorts of things. Oh, I think was it was a unique that was telling me that the dengue mozzie is different to the other mozzie. Like dengue mozzies come out in the morning, malaria mozzies come out at night. Or did no, that I dream? Goes, that? that
2: goes with the four thousand. That's <laughs> Okay, I'm
1: completely making that up. Do not in any because way. Because the general
2: rule is all these mozzies bite at both dawn and dusk. Though. Okay. It's when you're sitting outside at the start or yeah. end of the day, having Probably. a gin and tonic, which maybe not at dawn,
1: but uh, well, it depends. Hey, um, so what are you going to do? What are we going to do about? Mozzies? Why can't we just s- spray all those mozzies, get rid of them with something? And I also heard something about a um, a Franken mozzie. a uh, a genetically modified mozzie that does something to the other mozzies this is this is uh, i don't know the
2: details of this but they have produced a genetically modified male mozzie uh that when it mates uh produces infertile girl mozzies so that you then break the whole breeding cycle um, so don't ask me too much detail but they're trying one of these genetically modified mosquitoes to try and reduce the overall mosquito burden um, very nice way of doing it a much easier way to do it would be to stop having all these little bits of water lying around outside like they do in Singapore where you get prosecuted if you leave a little saucer a outside that's got a puddle in it you'll get a fine slapped on you straight away because the simplest mosquito reduction
1: system is just not to have stagnant water for them to breed really?
2: Yeah, very cheap, very effective.
1: Do you know what's coming into my mind? I was trying to grow some avocados in my house. You know, you put a little pot of water out and you put some avocado pips in and maybe one out of 20 of them will grow because of some reason. And actually, with avocado prices being what they are, I was on to a good thing. But then I noticed this sort of, this, this avalanche of mozzies coming towards me from the end of the couch, and I realised that they were breeding in this little, tiny pool of water. There were hundreds of them. That would probably cost you $800 in Singapore. <laughs> well, exactly. and that, So I realised from there, gee, even the smallest portion of still water can breed mozzies. And, um, it's the, that's, hard, that's a hard law to enact in Brazil, I'm sure, with rainforests and, and whatever. Yeah, not going to happen in Brazil. I'd just go spraying some toxic chem- chemical all around the place instead. So what would your advice be for somebody? Say, I'm thinking, yep, yeah, I'm going to Rio, I'm going to the Olympic Games. What would you tell me to do?
2: I don't think I'd have any concern at all if I was a healthy adult or older child. I think the, if I was a pregnant woman at the moment with the uncertainties around Zika, I'd be very hesitant, me personally, I'd be very yeah. hesitant to travel anywhere. Uh, where the Aedes Egyptian mosquitoes endemic. So that means a lot of parts of Asia, Africa, and it would certainly, for me, include Brazil. Oh. So if you've got any pregnant women listeners who want to hand over their tickets to a healthy adult <laughs> male who's not pregnant... Um,
0: Keen to check you. out the Olympic Games, too. <laughs> Purely professional.
1: Uh, Nick, always good. Um, you make what seems to be a very complex area... Um, Quite uh, quite understandable. We are going to uh, be back talking with uh, Perry Nadal about the most significant discovery in psychiatry, I reckon, in the last decade.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: You indeed are listening to 3 Triple I love catching our panellists uh, with their headphones off talking to each other as if, yeah, we've got hours. It's fantastic. Once, so uh, once in 21 years, we did leave the microphones on <laughs> by mistake. <laughs> we had um, Lex Dutercarter, who could be quite um, forthright in his opinion, but he didn't say anything wrong, didn't say anything bad, but it was quite funny. We had a listener call up and say, you know your mic's wrong.
2: <laughs> I'm just going to update you on the you know count, which at the moment is zero, zero and five to you, Mal. That's because I do the most talking. Maybe that's
1: the case. And you have a buzz. You've got a I'm buzz, t- man. I thought that would be t- awesome. I'd keep <laughs> Buzz, you know. Tell us about the latest discovery in the last millennia.
3: Yeah. So, Harry. actually, this is a good news story. Um, because I felt my levels of anxiety rising quite precipitously during that last story about Zika and dengue and malaria and mm. all these other awful oh. things that we now know more about and yeah. means that we can't leave our houses. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is actually a really good development. Um, and it's all about a big step forward in our understanding of schizophrenia which is a condition that causes immense hardship both to patients and their families and as yet we have had no real understanding of the mechanisms that underlie the process Mm. that results in the symptoms of schizophrenia and previously like a lot of other conditions in psychiatry we've treated schizophrenia with medications that we've just stumbled across and they look like they work and so we stick with that but we've never actually thought hard enough about what is going on to create the symptoms that schizophrenia shows and that's a bit harsh
1: (laughs) medications we've stumbled across
3: well i think i'm talking mostly about the dopamine antagonists which we did stumble across and which we've kind of stuck with in the years since that time Um, And it's because they seem to work to quell the acute symptoms of psychosis when people present with delusions and hallucinations, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they do become better once they're treated with those medications, Mm -hmm. and yet there are other aspects of schizophrenia which I think are much more disabling, Mm -hmm. and we don't really understand why they arise or how to treat them. I'm talking about difficulties in thinking clearly and in planning things and in motivating yourself and executing tasks Mm -hmm. but also the kind of social dimension to schizophrenia Mm. that people experience a sort of social withdrawal which Mm. makes it hard for them you know to establish and maintain relationships and because schizophrenia has its onset in those late teens early 20s um that's a really critical period for people to finish their studies start work and also establish you know long long long-term relationships with other people so it's, a, that, it's that aspect, I think, of schizophrenia that we've really never understood. Mm-hmm. So this new research seems to suggest that there is a process that occurs in the normal maturation of the brain that we've never really thought about very carefully. And I think that um, it's all to do with uh, the normal process of pruning of um, brain dendrites, which occurs in the late teens and early 20s in sorry you want to interject tell me no no no
1: i I just love medical terms like pruning um and when i first heard that as a again as a medical student all those years ago i thought no when i think of pruning i think of hedges Mm -hmm. you know and uh, big clippers yes and shaping so just tell us what pruning means to a psychiatrist
3: well every neuron has dendrites that come off it and then interact with other cells in the brain and what we think happens in that sort of critical period of maturation of the brain in the late teens and early 20s is that um, some pathways in the brain are reinforced and others, which are maybe not so useful, um, are then uh, cut back. And mm-hmm. that's where the pruning comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that allows us to focus more effectively and to think more clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, And there's a theory that that's why people with ADHD tend to grow out of ADHD as they get into their late teens and early 20s because that process of maturation helps them focus. Oh, I didn't know that. Right,
1: so So what you're doing is you're pruning effectively, you're cutting back a whole lot of those brain cells mm. to improve or to focus on the ones that work really well and to get rid of the ones that don't work so well.
3: Yeah, that's, that's right. It. And we think that that process occurs actually throughout life really, but there's a huge um spike in that process in this mm. in this period of time which is also the period of time when not coincidentally we think schizophrenia has its onset. Right. So the way that the researchers approached this issue was they had a look again at all of this genomic data that we're assembling, thousands and tens of thousands of genomes which have been now mapped and, um, and patients with schizophrenia have some anomalies at various different locations along that genome. Um, unfortunately, until now we've found maybe a hundred different locations where there might be unusual spots in people with schizophrenia that don't correspond to the spots where people don't have schizophrenia so just
1: remind me all these genomes so all these um bits of genes i mean is it just are they stored in one place is there a genome bank where people can go look at these genes or is it like a whole lot of different laboratories around the world each looking at different genes
3: i think there are some large banks of mm-hmm. pooled data uh, okay. and uh, these particular investigators looked at, you know, quite large, like um, 23,000, 36,000.
1: It's large. It's yeah. quite big, okay. you
3: know.
1: <laughs> mm. they, do you know where they got their data from? Was it just from... These guys were in the States, weren't they? they? Yeah,
3: they were at um, Massachusetts General Hospital and um, uh, Harvard Medical School, I think, primarily.
1: All right. So was it an international collaboration, do you know, or was it just within the States? Cause I'm...
3: I think it, I, I, I think they might have used data from elsewhere, right, but okay. um, it's really a North American study as okay. far as I'm aware. Okay. Mm. So they had a look and they decided rather than looking at all the different loci, they would focus in on, as you mentioned before, chromosome 6 and in particular the production or uh, the genetic code for this uh, component of the immune system called complement 4C4. Mm. And it, it looks like... And that was really just the starting point of their thinking. They went, OK, clearly this is, this is a significant um, trigger for what might be... Um, what develops into schizophrenia. So how does it work and what does it do? Now, in the rest of the body, in the immune system, C4 is more like... um Uh, It's a bit of a signal to the rest of the immune system. So this is a
1: protein? Yes. C4 is a protein, yeah?
3: That's right. And it wanders around in the bloodstream and identifies foreign bodies or debris. So it could be a virus or a bacteria or even a splinter. Yeah. And then other components of the immune system come along and destroy that. So it's just a kind of um, a marker that says, here is something that is not from this body. This needs to be gotten rid of.
1: Okay, so C4 would go to the splinter. Mm Mm-hmm and somehow signal signal the rest of the immune system, this is foreign, get rid of
3: it. Yeah, that's right. Gotcha. So what these researchers then discovered is that this probably is happening in the brain as well, but not just in response to like a foreign body, but also as a normal part of the maturity development of the brain. So C4 is therefore sitting on one of these little spines that aren't useful in the neuron Uh and saying, get rid of this one. And then the microglia come along and eat up that little dendrite.
1: Ah, yeah, this is how it's making sense. Okay, Hmm. gotcha.
3: Okay, so then they thought, what is the difference between the C4 in people with schizophrenia and the C4 in people who don't have schizophrenia? And they looked at mouse models, but they also looked at human brains. Mm -hmm. And we already know that there is a higher level of C4 in the blood of people with schizophrenia. That's been known for a while.
1: Really? I didn't know that. Okay. Mm
3: -hmm. And... Then they looked at five different regions of people's brains who have schizophrenia and all of those regions had elevated levels of C4. Mm -hmm. So the theory goes that, in fact, C4 is either more active or more prevalent in the brains of people with schizophrenia and it's lopping off all these dendrites. Mm -hmm. And that might be one of the reasons why uh, people's ability to think clearly Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. make decisions and all those other aspects of what we call the negative syndrome of Mm -hmm. schizophrenia... Um, is a phenomenon for these people. And also why even when we treat someone with an acute episode of psychosis and their delusions might disappear and their auditory hallucinations might disappear, their thinking remains impaired in some instances for quite a long time.
1: So what you're saying is that the development of schizophrenia may be an immunological response, an inflammatory response.
3: Yes, which which chimes with my overall view of, yes, the universe and everything, which is that everything's about... Inflammation inflammation in the brain. It's all about... That's
1: what it's all about. That's fascinating. So that means... Um, oh, well, hang on. Let me go back a step. So the C4s, they go into the brain, they say to the immune system, here, lob this off. Mm-hmm. But there's way too much C4. Mm-hmm.
3: Um,
1: and so too much gets lobbed off, which mm-hmm. leads to the syndrome of schizophrenia, which is a broad syndrome, not just one disorder. Mm-hmm. And... But, but, hang on. But does the... And so the C four that's made in schizophrenia is that a that's a different type of C four? Is it too much C four?
3: So I think. Well, we know that there is too much C four. I think that the next question is: Is it an abnormally active form of C four? And maybe Nick has uh, another contribution to make about this query.
2: I no, I was going to because I'm interested. We've known for a long time about this huge number, hundred or more genetic variations in people with schizophrenia compared to people who don't have and now we seem to have the unifying theory of c4 where does that where does that put the Uh other hundred genetic differences in the context of this new finding about c4
3: so this actually leads me in a beautiful segue on to the other thing that i want to talk about if i speak really fast yeah sure which, which is another study which unfortunately for the authors of this study came out four days after the nature paper and didn't get nearly as much press across the world but which also looked at um, genetic studies of people with schizophrenia and then compared them with the symptom profiles of people with schizophrenia much more closely. Um, And what they found was that there were particular um, symptom clusters of patients with schizophrenia which corresponded to specific um, changes in the genome, such that it makes us think that while we think about schizophrenia as one condition in fact really this is an umbrella term which covers probably at least eight according to these researchers different subtypes all of which we lump together and treat in a similar way and which we should be looking at a little bit more closely. And this brings us around in a beautiful big circle to the 1800s and all the psychiatrists in the 1800s who subclassified schizophrenia into hebephrenic schizophrenia mm. and, and paranoid schizophrenia and understood it much more closely because they were really looking at, at what they saw in front of them and weren't just doing some sort of DSM checklist yeah. diagnosis.
1: You, so that, and that's the difference between the uh, ideographic model, which is a model related to the patient, idio meaning specific um, and when you look at a real person it's it's what they present with compared to the nomothetic which is just a broad cluster of here's a diagnosis and what you're saying is just sort of so um what's the word is music to my ears because you want to look at the person not the diagnosis
3: Mm, yeah absolutely i think that's really true and this is a long way of answering your question, Nick, because I think that what we've found is probably true for a large number of people who suffer from schizophrenia, but it is not the entire story. Mm. But at least it gives us some, some sense of what the underlying mechanism might be for this kind of schizophrenia where thinking is impaired mm. um, and not necessarily other types of schizophrenia where it's really the delusions and the hallucinations which cause the problem for the patient. Do
1: you know, I had to smile a bit when Nick was asking that question about the hundreds of other uh, Genomes being implicated in in mental illness. I'm very conscious of not saying you know, Nick, whenever I look at you now. And uh, we were talking about this before the show, Perry. That uh, you know, I've heard this before so many times about know, different genomes and different expressions of mental illness and the phenotype and the genotype, and so. And you were really excited about. It. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just see where this pans out. And so I wasn't as excited as you were but what got me really excited was this C4 discovery because it really has such major implications and I can see a Nobel Prize coming out of this. Mark my words.
3: Yeah, well, I think it's the end of black box psychiatry yeah. where we actually yeah. try and think about what's underlying all of these yeah. conditions and try to then match our treatments because that's the most exciting thing if we can help our patients.
1: Absolutely. That's what you're yeah. go yeah. yeah,
3: yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, if you think about it, um, we might be able to provide very targeted immunotherapy to people mm. who are suffering from yeah. these conditions. Yeah. We might be able to preemptively treat them before they develop all of these problems. So, that's the really exciting thing yeah. that people's lives might really be transformed by a better understanding
2: and you've mentioned perry that um, inflammatory mediators for disease are your thing at the moment i think triple R listeners should be aware that they are hearing what will be the breaking medical news story of this century, Mm. which is that inflammatory disorder and inflammatory underpinnings, not just of psychiatric disease, but I think a whole range of other chronic illnesses is going to be the big discovery of this
1: century, and you heard it here first on radiotherapy and the microbiome too in the gut. That's going to be inflammatory as well. That's, that's where it's happening here at Triple R. Mm-hmm. Now, just in case people want to look up this study, it's in Nature. Do you have a, the author's name, or do they just go Nature Schizophrenia uh, C four?
3: So, um, yes, Sakar is the lead author. s e k a r And you just write. I looked it up on Google Scholar and I looked up Sakar Nature, January 2016, and and that was where it was. Just
1: think Zika and not quite. Exactly. (laughs) Ah, there's a theme going on here, you know.
0: Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
1: We had some
3: calls. We did. A caller ca- called and asked a little bit about whether or not, uh, in a similar way, Parkinson's disease might be related to complement oh. abnormal, abnormalities, either elevated levels of complement or abnormal activity of complement. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's something I'd like to to ask the other panellists here, whether they've got a view on that. Because I, I, I think similarly it's a, it's a dopamine-related okay. condition and so therefore there might be some something that we don't understand about etiology it could be related to an immune overactivity
2: the caller was very smart and noticed a a concurrence of symptomatology between the symptoms you were describing around negativity and schizophrenia and some of the symptoms people with chronic parkinson's disease suffer Uh, and it's absolutely right that parkinson's disease is also a dopamine mediated disorder and we use dopamine mediating medications which can have all sorts of very profound effects on people's behaviour and responses. I don't think we have any idea what the role of C4 is yet, but watch Mm -hmm. this space. You'll hear it first on radiotherapy.
3: Yeah, that's right. I think that this research has really broad implications for not just schizophrenia, but also lots of other brain disorders, which we would like to... understand better Uh, one of the things about the research that was done was that not only did some of the locations that they were looking at specifically on chromosome 6 relate to schizophrenia but also some of them related to autism Mm -hmm. um quite closely and so i think that we can piggyback off this research to inform our understanding of lots of other lots of other conditions which hitherto have remained difficult
0: to understand and keep in mind there is a strong um uh, immunological and um, inflammatory um, component to all neurocognitive disorders. You know, it is thought that, you know, um, brain cells atrophy, they, they die, um, and um, part of that is due to... Um Inflammatory processes and mm. um, the waste or the sort of metabolic waste left behind by that and formation of plaques, etc., that inform certain types of dementia, such as Alzheimer's. You know, so I think everything could very well be um, interrelated and um, connected, but um, remains to be researched.
1: And how fortunate are we having a psycho neuroimmunologist doing her PhD, a world leader uh, with us uh, on the team of radiotherapy? So if it's going to happen in the world, it's going to, you're going to know about it and then you're going to tell us about it, Perry.
3: I'll do my best.
1: How good is that? Thanks, Mel. Dr. Moto. I love that name. Um, Mental health in China. This is not something that sort of goes through my mind a lot, but obviously it's been consuming your concentration.
0: Well, I'm going to come full circle. I'm going to move off the um, professor or Dr. Sikara and the seeker. I'm going to come back to the poor chicken. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, this is not the year for the chicken, as we've now identified. They've had a bit of a rocky start, but it's the year of the monkey. Mm. Tonight is, well, today, I should say, today is um, Chinese New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow will be the first day of the year of the monkey. Mm-hmm. In sequence, after the monkey, in 2017, will be the year of the chicken. We hope that um, the monkeys will get some bad rap then and the chickens <laughs> can have a comeback. <laughs> Go, so, in the meantime, we'll talk about the year of the monkey. And it got me curious and thinking about... Um, um, well, the the Chinese New Year and some of the Chinese um, New Year customs and cultures, but I'm mindful this is a medical and a psychiatry or even a medical legal show, so I have to keep this focused to psychiatry practices. And then it got me um, reflecting on some of my own anecdotal experiences in in treating and managing um, uh, persons with uh, mental illness who are of um, Chinese um, descent. So in some of my research and reading around the topic... um, I've learned that uh, the, uh, China has got um, its first new mental health legislation that um, was uh, brought into or well, imp- implemented and, and um, become effective um, in 2013, actually. So um, it's been just over a couple of years old and um, how that contrasts our mental health system. But I think what's probably more interesting for the listeners is perhaps some of the social and cultural differences between um, how we perceive families and cultures and human behaviour and how the um, Eastern Chinese Han-Confucian um, race sees um, mental illnesses and one's individual role um, to family and society and, and how that actually permeates their mental health legislation, which I'll comment on.
2: Can I, can I just ask, is their new mental health legislation something more than just an excuse to lock up dissident artists?
0: Very, very true. Um, very good question, because the uh, the um, psychiatrist psychiatry in China has um, copped a, a very bad flag um, for many years now about um, psychiatric abuse and um, the state locking people up, forcing them for um, uh, involuntary treatment um, just because they 're um, dissidents or um, because of uh, political or, or um, often um, sexual orientation so uh, there was a show um, there was a documentary. Not too long ago, um, that was um, on the uh, SBS, which um, documented um, certain mental health facilities in China that would voluntarily um, treat people for homosexuality using primarily aversive therapies unfortunately and even um, electroconvulsive therapy so these sort of shock stories uh does ring true and i think if anything the mental health act is an attempt to try to sort of clean some of this up which i found quite surprising so maybe just a few simple stats to begin with i've got about five minutes um, so, very populous country. I think the population currently sits at about 1.3 billion, close, edging closer to 1.4. Um, they estimate about um, 100 to 200 million people suffering from um, all severities and spectrums of um, mental illnesses, um, and managing and helping families and individuals suffering from mental illness has always been a major issue. Traditionally, and I think this. Um, is influenced by uh, the East Asian sort of post-Confucian cultural identity, Um, people and their personal duties um, were more to serve the family and the societal goal. There is much less emphasis on individual rights and individual human rights. So um, traditionally, uh, if um, one was mentally unwell in China, Um, and the family deem them to be unwell, the family are the ones enforcing treatment and the ones detaining them for treatment. The psychiatrist in the hospital doesn't actually have too much of a say. They just go along with what the legal guardian wants, and the legal guardian is usually the family. Um, The individual's rights are not considered too big an issue because um, what the individual is doing is against the family's wishes. Mm -hmm. Um, So... And, and certainly I can think of one, one or two occasions in my own public practice when I've sort of seen this happen, um, when I would be treating a um, Chinese uh, patient and the family would come in and um, they would have a fair bit of um, quandaries and misunderstanding about why the patient can't be detained um, for treatment when the family is saying, please keep them in hospital. In China, if I say, yes, you should keep them in hospital, the hospital just keep the patient mm. and i had to sort of explain to them how mm. there's the mental health act and it's the, roughly the psychiatrist's decision and we have to focus on the individual's rights mm-hmm. and the institutionalisation paradigms and it was all quite different and a mm. contrasting mm. Um, sort of a paradigm mm. so um the mental health act uh, got brought in um it i've got the first page of it sitting here, signed by the then chairman, um, Hu Jintao.
3: Can I just mention that that's actually in Chinese? Yes,
0: it is. Yeah,
3: so you're, you're reading from the original there.
0: Yes, I want it done? to be authentic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it covers concepts like prevention, treatment, recovery and integration for a Chinese mental health act. I mean, the words are there in the first page of the act. That was um, s- section number three. You could, so <laughs> You're
3: holding that up to us We <laughs> yeah. should be able to read it
0: <laughs> Yes I guess no one can second guess me um, They cover concepts such as um, community based treatment such as um, voluntary treatment in that people should be treated voluntarily um, unless um, there are serious risks of harm to themselves or others and um, unless there is a serious mental illness at play and I found it very interesting um, if one has a serious mental illness, and they present to a Chinese mental health facility, if they are only at harm to themselves, the family still has to agree for them to be detained in hospital. If the family disagrees, the patient doesn't have to stay. Again, the decision is taken out of the psychiatrist's hands. But if the patient is... Um, posing risks of harm to others and society, then it doesn't really matter what the family says. The hospital will keep them. And if there's any dispute, then it goes to court.
2: I'm very interested in the numbers here because we in Australia and most westernized societies closed down the big lunatic asylum as they were and moved to a community management model trying to get someone admitted to a psychiatric hospital in wealthy Australia is nigh on impossible and yet you're saying in China they can just get admitted a drop of a hat do they have a lot of psychiatric beds available for this 200 million who have a psychiatric illness?
0: They used to They used to. Um, At last count, or currently I should say, um, they have 728 um, mental health hospitals. Um, The first one was built in um, 1898 um, with about 500 beds.
2: So they still have separate psychiatric hospitals from the mainstream
0: healthcare? Yes. So again, one of the key motives of this Mental Health Act is to try to... um, um, bring down these institutions and try to integrate mental health treatment into um, general hospitals and community clinics
1: So where- when was this uh, act brought in uh, motor
0: um, it passed the national people 's Congress in two thousand right. and twelve, um, and its implementation was um, w- 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 uh, would have started in may two thousand and thirteen so just over a couple of years ago now
1: mm, so fairly recent and fairly advanced as well in terms of the ideas yeah. the...
0: F- fairly advanced and it's i think it 's the uh, the um, health department of health 's um, Intention to try to integrate and mainstream mental health care mm-hmm. because previous, this is um, China's inaugural Mental Health Act. Before this, um, certain large municipalities with sufficient psychiatrists and influence would just dictate their own laws and what they mm-hmm. wanted to mm-hmm. do, which is probably easy enough. I mean, you look at a city like Shanghai, the greater metropolitan area has a population just over 24 million. <laughs> so they could determine wow. their own laws yeah. and, you know, did. What they wanted to do um, but I think this national mental health act is trying to mainstream all that. Do
1: you know I thought you were going to talk about Clozapine as well which is a medication we use in Australia and it's also used in China but in a very different system. Um, it certainly is a very interesting area and a very interesting uh, kind of uh, uh, cultural way of looking at the um at medicine, because the economies of scale are just so huge too. Thank you so much, Dr. Moto. There's heaps more you you can talk about, and we will get you back on the show to talk about that stuff. Thank you to everybody in the studio, Dr. Perry, Dr. Moto, Dr. Nick, I'm Dr. Mal. Practice, this was the first radiotherapy show for 2016. We're going to say a big thank you to Kent. Kent is our new producer sitting out there looking so chilled and relaxed. He will be on board forever now. Thank you, Kent, and also a big thank you to the tall man who had been producing us for the last fifteen years. I don't know how he survived the first fifteen days, after, you know, with us guys. So, thank you, tall man. You were fantastic. We love you. Uh, stand by for the wonderful folks from San Gogo. They're coming up right at you now. We'll see you next Sunday at uh, eleven. No, at ten o'clock. Cheers. This has been a podcast from Free
0: Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne.